0: clients at that size care about putting bread on the table. They care about making sure that their employees are happy. And to be able to prove the business value of design is a huge improvement for our industry.
1: Hi, I'm Kavala Broy and this is Design This Way. On today's episode, I have with me Ritesh Gupta. Ritesh began his career advertising while at Widen & Kennedy, Deutsch and Saatchi & Saatchi, and has since transitioned to leading product design and branding in-house at mission-driven startups. He recently led the 360-degree rebrand of a dog food startup called Pet Plate with Sagmaster Walsh and RGA while serving as a senior director of brand and user experience. Currently, he's working with another startup called Cereal Box, where he's redesigning, rebuilding, repositioning and rebranding the platform. Ritesh and I met last year at a brand new conference in Vegas, where both of us were in the speaker lineup, and I was quite intrigued by his presentation, mostly because I have always been curious about what happens at the client side when a branding exercise is outsourced to an external agency. And Ritesh is the first person on my podcast to bring an insider's perspective on this. So we decided to record a podcast episode later when I was visiting New York, where Ritesh is now based out of. And that's how this episode happened. Well, in today's episode, Ritesh shares with us the story behind how he got into the world of design. It takes us through the Petplace rebranding process from the time the startup decided to rebrand to deciding the right design agency for the task and about the partnership with Sagmeister and Walsh. As you might be aware that now it's known as and Walsh, but at the time of the rebrand, they were Sagmeister and Walsh. Ritesh also talks about the importance of measuring the impact of design and how it can transform our industry. He also talks about the importance of diversity, inclusion and equity in the world of design. That's another topic that I felt that I didn't know much about. So I was trying to probe further to understand what it really means in the American perspective, because uh, in the US, that's a hot debate right now. So today's episode has been designed this way. Now I present Ritesh Gupta. recently spoke at brand new conference and in your talk you said that when you were a kid you believed your skin was brown because you drank chocolate milk <laughs> and uh, to be frank uh, the first time I met you if I closed my eyes and interacted with you I would have not guessed that I was talking to somebody who is Indian or from a <laughs> person of <an> Indian <laughs> origin. <laughs> This makes me curious about like, uh, what was your experience growing up as a first generation American?
0: Yeah, totally. So I was born in New Jersey and my parents and I moved when I was three years old Mm -hmm. to a city called Temecula, California, which is between San Diego and Los Angeles in Southern California. It was a pretty conservative society, city in general. Um, I was the only Indian for pretty much the majority of my growing up at my high school, elementary school, middle school. And when I was in preschool, yes, I I think I did make that joke. I don't remember making it, but my mom said that the reason that I was brown was because I drank chocolate milk instead of white milk. And (laughs) I'm happy to say that my views on race race relations and everything have become a little bit more nuanced since then. Mm -hmm. But... It wasn't until a little bit earlier in my teenage years or later in my teenage years where I decided or understood my brownness, mm-hmm. right? And so, yeah, I, I get that a lot. A lot of people joke or I like to joke that I'm um, a coconut br- brown and hairy on the outside and white on the inside. And to some degree, that's true.
1: I mean, there's this stereotype attached to Indian uh, parenting Mm -hmm. that parents uh, want you to do this traditionally well-paying jobs, right? It's very much true when it comes to India and especially if you're not from an affluent background or probably you don't have that kind of mentorship in your family. So going into a creative profession is a like far-fetched idea. Yeah. Is it true about uh, Indians here? as well?
0: Very much so, at least in my friend circles growing up. uh, Design, graphic identity, typography, any of that stuff wasn't even a discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the time, the Indians that I would go to these little gatherings or parties, go to temple wherever, most of them would talk about the ideal Indian going into a doctor, engineering, research, science, right. et cetera, professions, right? And I remember you made the joke at Brand New about if you're not a doctor and engineer, you're a disgrace.
1: Yeah, those are three <laughs> options you have.
0: Uh, uh, which is, is somewhat true. Um, I think part of the reason why graphic design and all these related creative professions aren't revered. Um, or at least understood is because oftentimes it's unclear to my parents' generation, our parents' generations, mm-hmm. uh, um, what the profession even is, what it means, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how they could talk about it to other parents, right? Um, and also it's unclear what the return on investment is gonna be. You know, when you, when you put somebody like a child through school to become a doctor, it's pretty clear what the average salary is gonna be for a doctor and you're gonna make that money back pretty quickly, right? right? Whereas for graphic design, the careers oftentimes are perceived as you're scraping by, you're a starving artist, et cetera, and it's unclear to uh, older generations that there could be a really great career path. Mm-hmm. in design. And so I've been fortunate enough to be supported by my family and stuff in various degrees and be relatively successful, or at least on my way to be more successful in the creative profession.
1: And in fact, uh, after your high school, you went to UCLA initially to study astrophysics and business, mm-hmm. but then later fell in love with design, huh. right? Yeah. How did that happen?
0: That was an interesting time because when I went to school and I had to decide on my major and focus, I was thinking about how could I get a job that I really loved and would get a decent salary. And at the time, the economy wasn't doing too well around 2009, et cetera, because the recession. Mm -hmm. And I saw that astrophysics careers primarily, or at least from my perception, were mostly research and development career paths. And most of the time when recessions come around, those R&D careers tend to get cut or fall by the wayside. There's reduced budget for NASA or JPL or whatever. And so I decided that a better path for me, or at least something that was a little bit more logical and a little bit more conservative was to go down the path of just general business. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I knew I wasn't really up for, nor what I I interested in being a doctor or an engineer.
1: Um so I you have to explain me this whole concept of American education where you can simultaneously study astrophysics and business. Ah uh, yes, yes, yes. Because wow, like I yeah. mean it doesn't happen in India. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. You are either a scientist or you're a business person. Sure, so sure. What are you studying? I mean, probably.
0: yeah. So within the American education system, it's essentially depending on the school and depending on the methodology of course it's pretty much study as much as you want get as much out and soak up as much education as you can from college right because the cost doesn't really increase that much when you add a a major, Mm -hmm. or at least in a big way, it doesn't really increase. What is a
1: major? It's basically like, yeah,
0: basically a major is like astrophysics. It's basically concentration. You Mm -hmm. everyone has to do this idea of general education classes, general uh, English classes and foreign language, etc. And then once Mm -hmm. you have like those bare kind of classes under your belt, then you move on to a concentration, right? Mm -hmm. So most of your freshman year might be spending doing the general education and then, like sophomore junior senior, you get more and more concentrated in a specific path I see so I see. when you come to college, unless you've gone there for a very specific reason, you're very much encouraged to explore as many career opportunities and majors as possible I see and then basically by the time it comes to your end of your senior year uh, sorry sophomore year, you're pretty much going towards a specific concentration Mm -hmm. i was i admittedly was not in a unique position because i had taken so many classes that counted towards my units in high school that i was able to have the creative freedom to do that so i was very privileged in that regard compared to some of my other colleagues and I think the idea behind learning business and astrophysics was that I had a passion of mine, which was astrophysics and um, figuring out stuff related to black holes and all this like really interesting stuff that's otherworldly, Mm
2: -hmm. but
0: also at the same time using business as almost kind of a a fallback in a way. Right. Um, in it's fact, a safer option. yeah in a way so that was my choice of initially thinking that I could do both now It did not end up working out at all because mm-hmm. it turns out when you because they're so different You actually have to take double the amount of courses <laughs> and astrophysics is very very difficult The yeah, amount of math and everything I was so hard so and it just didn't ended up not being practical, but I will say that um, my initial passion uh, which I started in kind of high school was philosophy and speech and debate Mm-hmm. And so initially I was thinking that I would do some sort of element of studies in philosophy. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, there's some philosophizing and intellectual stimulation that comes from design, right. which I really that love. True. That's so I'm true. still really able to scratch that itch with mm-hmm. philosophy, but not be so philosophical that um, I'm not making any money and I'm not being able to apply my knowledge in like a, a way that touches massive populations. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that was my that was my experience. And then
1: how did you fell in love with the graphic design? How did you discover that uh, was your calling?
0: So design I've had a very interesting relationship with design. So when I was in maybe preschool or kindergarten we Mm -hmm. got this Windows 95 Mm -hmm. Windows computer and I discovered Microsoft Paint and I would start messing around with it and I all the colors and the fact that I can just make whatever I wanted at that young age and be empowered to do so was really interesting. And so there was these old Budweiser commercials, the WhatsApp, those commercials that like became a meme. Um, mm-hmm. Those commercials, I remember the WhatsApp, which was how I spelled it was W-A-Z-A-P, WhatsApp, mm-hmm. And then, so what I did was I made, it's terrible typography and terrible, I was sick, so, six, so give me fine. a break. <laughs> And I, I basically created in Microsoft Paint W-A-Z-A-P and all the letters shared a common stem mm-hmm. or a common logo. line.
1: That's like goal. Met logo.
0: Yeah, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, like the Met logo, exactly. Yeah, right. uh, and so I was like, you know what? I'm creating something. I actually printed it out and mm-hmm. actually it still hangs up in front of my dad's typewriter in his office because he still uses typewriter. Uh-huh. And so I was able to... Think about design without really thinking about it actively like at really young right. but throughout high school and and beginning of college all that stuff I didn't really have a any sort of realization that I was good or interested or could make a buck from graphic design and so when I was thinking about my career path you know my parents would encourage me to make sure that I have a happy life and make sure that I can make money and also do something I'm good at and so I had never thought about a career path in graphic design until after college Mm -hmm. because I was striving towards becoming an investment banker and going down the consulting route, the accounting route, all these traditional routes that UCLA Mm -hmm. commonly recruited for. And so it wasn't until around the time of Wyden and Kennedy when I saw some pretty interesting design work happening that I actually boomeranged back to design.
1: But how did you get a job at Wyden and Kennedy? Because they generally hire designers or somebody from that kind of background.
0: Yeah, totally. So Wyden is known for very provocative, interesting advertisements. And usually the people Mm -hmm. that work on that are art directors, graphic designers, copywriters, producers, right? Like that's like the bread and butter for creating a really interesting ad. There's also, of course, strategy and stuff and all that interesting thinking that goes beyond creating something interesting. Interestingly enough, Wyden has had a very successful practice with media planning. And that's where I got my foot in the door, is media planning. So essentially buying Facebook ads, buying Twitter ads, buying Instagram ads, etc. So I came into a very creative company doing actually some pretty interesting creative things, but not actually doing the traditional stuff that Wyden is known for. You join a chef's uh,
1: restaurant, but you are buying groceries.
0: That's the analog. That's pretty much the analog. Essentially, it's a pretty close analog of um, you're not necessarily a chef, but you're around them and you're experiencing the culture and you're trying to figure out if you even like this stuff. And Mm -hmm. so that was my foray. I will say that I did do some projects at UCLA that I'm super proud of that were graphic design related, where I had to do some viral and guerrilla campaigns on campus. Uh, and I created some flyers and stuff like that. And people seemed to like them. And when I, pres- when I was in my interview at Saatchi and Saatchi in Deutsch, I'd show- I tended to show that work. Mm-hmm. And so I did realize without technically realizing that uh, I- there might be a career in the creative field. Um, right. So, But I was never actively thinking about going into a creative field because I was mm-hmm. always thinking in the back of my mind. I was always thinking that there's design, but there isn't business Mm-hmm, along mm-hmm. with it, they always seem like counter to each other, and in fact, very much the opposite. Uh, some of my design heroes, i guess i shouldn 't say the word heroes because i don't really hear worship in any way, but like some of the people that are really successful in design oftentimes have the understanding of business that goes along with it right right
1: and how many years did you spend in advertising agencies uh... so
0: Sachi and Sachi was about a summer right i actually uh, I have an interesting story about. Uh, Actually, I got my internship extended because I ended up working with one of the heads of the creative department, which was awesome. And that's where I also realized that I might be kind of decently good at creative. Uh, That was about a summer. And then Deutsch was about a, I would say 20, 15 to 20 weeks, maybe, maybe somewhere around there. It's a little blurry now. And then Wyden, I was there for a few years. So Mm. totally when I was like... When you're thinking about how much i was doing in terms of advertising the amount of hours that i was packing into each of these days um was probably enough to double the average work week Uh, but i grew i grew up basically in human years basically three and a half, four, five years around there in advertising, right. living living and breathing that culture. And you
1: learned about creative profession from working in a company, right? Yep, exactly. Which is interesting because most of the people I have talked on this podcast come from a design school. Totally. And you bring a different perspective from that.
0: Yeah. What was interesting is that I realized pretty early on in my career that I was not just interested in interesting design. I was also interested in solving the underlying business problems Mm -hmm. that could be affecting the success of design. So in other words, I realized pretty early on that advertising is super beneficial and marketing is super beneficial, but consumers will see through the company or brand, no matter how good the advertising is, If the underlying product, operations, does it work, et cetera, is not fixed. So I got really fascinated by this idea of blending advertising, psychology, but also fixing the underlying product and business. And that's how I've started progressing over and over more closer to product and branding together rather than treating them separately
1: interestingly you had a startup also yeah i've
0: I've had a few of them um when i was in college i had two of them When, but when i had left widen i started my own startup uh, which i'm proud to say it it crashed and burned but i had a startup that was kind of like this linkedin for musicians the intent for musicians to meet up and collaborate because what i was seeing is in brooklyn there was a lot of really amazing talent within the electronic scene and at the time i was living in washington heights where and a lot of people in washington heights were these musicians who were going to juilliard and learning classical and jazz and they're amazing and so i was thinking oh how could we bring these people together and so that was one of my first forays into like product design and just learning how to work with a development team and a and thinking about the user experience, the branding, et cetera, it was all very homegrown. And that eventually crashed and burned. But what was interesting is that one day as I was thinking about what impact I want to make and should I work for a new company? And if so, what's that new company, whatever. I was watching Shark Tank.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: and. That show. So
1: one of my favorite shows. It's such a good
0: show. It's like so entertaining, easy to watch. You get some interesting business ideas, and there's of course the drama behind it. Right. And so at the time, I again I was thinking about what should I do with my life, and uh, like should I go into graphic design, should I go into product design, should I go into UX? Do I need to go to a school, back to school, you know whatever it might be? Mm -hmm. So I just happened to be watching this Shark Tank episode, and I saw a company called Hungry Harvest on it, and their mission was about solving food waste and solving hunger. Right. Um, And it was so. Interesting because that was my one of my first experiences thinking about how companies can have social impact in right. addition to making profit and being sustainable. Right. And so I saw Evan, the founder and CEO of Hungry Harvest, pitch on Shark Tank. He got ended up getting a deal with I think Robert Hershevek. Mm-hmm. And I that, well, he's I'm actually
1: gonna. one of my favorites. Uh, he's so
0: awesome. He's, he's great. Such a sweet guy. He's, he seems so sweet mm-hmm. and. Uh, I emailed Evan. I was like, hey, Evan, I just saw you on Shark Tank. I would love to help out. Can I help you with marketing, etc.? And we yeah. just emailed. I just emailed him. I straight up emailed him. And uh, I'm sure he was getting barraged with Hundreds, if not thousands, of emails from random people being like, "Oh man, congrats!" Like, (laughs) you know all that stuff that people like to do. And but here I am, just being like, "Hey, can I help you?" Like, let's talk. And they just happened to be in New York City for a little while, and we ended up talking, hitting it off great. Uh, Interestingly enough, the way I got the pet plate uh, gig was the same thing. I saw Ronaldo, the founder on Shark Tank. And then the following day, I just emailed him. I said, hey, I would love to work for you. So the last (laughs) last few years, I've just, the main source of new business has just been Shark Tank. Right.
1: Uh, What was your position uh, like in Hungry Harvest? Mm -hmm. You were director of marketing and impact, right? I mean, that's an interesting position. What were you working on?
0: So there's some interesting things that I worked on at Hungry Harvest. It was basically taking the best of all the worlds that I had known at the time. Mm -hmm. I was able to apply media buying, copywriting, Uh, a little bit of product design in the sense of I could help build the actual underlying product with a team. All these things were happening. So Hungry Harvest is essentially a variety box of fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And the goal of Hungry Harvest was to solve food waste and solve hunger. And what Hungry Harvest would do is work with farmers directly to take their surplus produce that was rejected by supermarkets. Maybe it was too ugly, maybe it was too big, too small. It just didn't fit the cosmetic standards. Or maybe a farmer just overgrew and they just had too big of a harvest and they just needed to figure out ways to offshore it, right?
1: Right. In the US, I think it's also a problem to get rid of things. Yeah, 100%. Right.
0: It's a huge problem. There's a huge food waste problem in the States. There's also a very big hunger problem. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was to not only take create variety boxes of produce you know the the general staples like mm-hmm. apples and oranges, etc. But also these like funky, weird vegetables and roots and stuff that people are not not used to. So it was a great way for you to get your normal fruits and vegetables that you're used to, but then also the stuff that you might not ever think about getting in the grocery store. So it was right. a really good way for consumers to just eat more fruits and vegetables. And then what we would do is we would either donate or subsidize produce to people in need. So we'd either donate produce to like maybe a food bank or something but we also created this interesting initiative that was called produce in a snap Mm -hmm. so you know this idea food stamps yeah so food stamps is now called snap benefits so I you know created this uh, this branding kind of it's called food produce you know um, it was essentially like creating these communities wherein a community could come apply their snap benefits to purchase the produce at a discounted rate So rather than donating to people, they actually would be able to use their SNAP benefits, which was a really interesting concept because up until that point, I was always thinking about give, give, give. Like, do we need to be giving free things to everyone who can't necessarily afford it? And to some degree, that's 100% true. There's people who cannot afford even a dime and they need to be supported. But there's another really important population that we cannot forget, especially as designers and product folks. Is that there's a population of people that can pay for something? They just not might not be able to pay full price. Right. So to use this be- program, basically called Produce in a SNAP, they would be able to pay and feel a sense of worth and dignity. Right. Without having to be paying full price or without being essentially don't feeling like they're just being given. So there's a really interesting dynamic there and I the complexities around worth and value for companies and consumers I really really opened my eyes when I was there. Right. Um, and also this idea of a company reaching out to communities that are generally marginalized and generally very underserved. Baltimore has done a very poor job of serving the wider population primarily black folk within the city. And so to be able to use companies like Hungry Harvest to make an impact was Mm. really interesting. And it really opened my eyes on the impact design could have.
1: Right, and uh, you worked on their product uh, design and their branding?
0: Yeah, did that and then also marketing. So generally just getting out there. And so the concept of director of marketing impact was marketing being like the most common way people would describe what I was doing but also impact in the sense of there is all these other things that marketing people are not traditionally asked to do, nor do they want to do, etc. that I was taking on. So it was a really rewarding experience. And after that, you joined Pet Plate, right? Right.
1: As you described that, uh, you just send them a mail yeah. and you got the job. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about that and uh, in fact uh, you ended up uh, working on the
0: rebrand mm-hmm. along with the team of uh, and walsh mm-hmm. it was called
1: sagmeister walsh at and the time
0: got... right yeah. at the time it was technically sagmeister and walsh and then basically about a year or so after the brand had already been out there mm-hmm. jessica and stefan uh, decided to part ways mm-hmm. so pet plate is a delivery service mm-hmm. that delivers super fresh and healthy dog food it's interesting that when whenever you describe dog food or like, oh, that tastes like dog food, it usually implies like, oh my goodness, this <laughs> food tastes terrible.
1: Yeah, that's how people say, right? Oh, this food tastes like dog food.
0: Yeah, right. <laughs> and so with Pet Plate, The idea was to give dog food a better name like a good name, right? So like when people describe it as dog food, it's maybe just as good as human food,
1: right? So tell us about the journey from the time you joined and uh, you ended up rebranding them.
0: So I joined Pet Plate in early 2017.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. I emailed Ronaldo the founder after i saw shark tank right right they got investment from um, shark tank so actually no ronaldo was not able to secure an investment there's probably a bunch of, there's a bunch of reasons why in my opinion they totally should have invested what was interesting about shark tank or none of the sharks actually investing is that there was an outpouring of support for ronaldo being like how dare they how could they not invest like what's wrong with them like mm-hmm. ronaldo has a dog named winston and winston was featured on shark tank and people were falling in love with winston like people just fell in love with ronaldo and winston's story mm-hmm. and the impact a lot of consumers saw the impact of what pet plate and what a stand for could have and so even though the sharks did not invest i would actually argue that the part of the success of Pet Plate today is actually not getting an investment hmm. and allowing consumers to feel super empowered to be like, wait, that's a company that should not be slept on.
1: And is that also the reason you mail them immediately and you're like, I want to join?
0: <laughs> yeah, I saw, totally, I saw Ronaldo as a total star. He is a star to this day, like he's, such a smart dude. Mm-hmm. He was like the first person in his family to go to college. Mm-hmm. He graduated from MIT with a degree in physics. Mm-hmm. Even before he opened up Pet Plate, he was a big shot consultant at like McKinsey, which is just like such a huge, well paying, I will say, uh, mm-hmm. consulting agency, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And he like started this company in Brooklyn. Like you have to hustle, like right? And especially when you want to start a dog food company. So I definitely did not dream as a kindergartner or a preschooler that I would be helping rebrand a dog food company. Mm-hmm. But like it was probably one of the most rewarding experiences for sure. Right. And uh, how did the plan of rebranding start? Because when you might have joined the company, they might not be thinking about rebranding. Sure. Were they? sure. So we had known, and part of my pitch to them early on was the, the product, people, our customers were really loving the product, right? The yeah. customers were the dogs, um, <laughs> right? Yeah. And the and dogs were really loving, it, loving the food. But the visual identity did not match the product. Right. Oftentimes what I've noticed happens is, Um, it's actually the visual identity is really good, but the product doesn't match the visual identity. That's a different conversation. But in this context, the product was very good, but the visual identity did not, and the branding in general did not match. And so we knew ever since I joined that the company needed to rebrand, right? But we did not have the funding at the time in 2017 in order to earmark money and dedicate it toward branding. So in 2018, so about a year after I started, we were able to fortunately kick off the official rebranding process once so we- Till then, what were you working I mean? on? There's a lot. There's a few things that had to be done even before a rebrand started. One is we had to have a very clear understanding of who our consumer was. Okay. And so the process with that I think is super interesting because I think a lot of designers should do it more. Mm-hmm. This idea of talking to real consumers, sending them surveys that take a really long time to fill out is something that usually companies are super wary of. They don't wanna bother customers or whatever. But my, my thought, especially coming from a user experience angle is customers want to tell you their feedback, especially if you have a mission-driven company where you're trying to do something that's for the better of an industry. And so oftentimes what I felt at previous experiences that we were not talking to consumers enough. And so a long time, past in my life until I realized that how important it was to talk to users. So I would get on the phone, meet them in person, ask them to fill out like these surveys that took like 15 minutes. Like this takes a long time to send out some of the surveys that I was sending out. But in those surveys, they would have such a rich feedback in it Mm -hmm. that it really allowed us to start to craft who our user and our dogs, ideal dogs were and stuff. And so it took a long time actually to do that. I think also you might
1: have uh, worked on making the survey palatable and enjoyable. Hundred
0: percent. So what we—that's an interesting point. We try to make our surveys very conversational, and so we would use tools wherein if you answered a certain way, we would bring that answer into the following question. So it makes it feel like, oh wow, thanks for saying this thing. Uh, mm. Now based on that, here's another question based on that exact thing. Right. So it felt more like a conversation than a standard. Rank your experience with a customer service agent. Like all that boring <laughs> stuff. It, it, ne- it never felt like Rate that. Rate on one to five. Yeah. yeah. The other thing that was really important is we wouldn't use certain words. Even before the rebrand, I knew I wanted to make the brand fun. Like it's really hard <laughs> to make a serious dog food brand. Like no, it's bo- that's boring. And it doesn't make sense. Right. So in the survey, the copywriting, and that was part of the experience at Sachi & White and Wyden specifically is just figuring out how to make... These small incremental improvements in the copywriting that make a big Mm -hmm. difference. So we wouldn't use formal words like you, Y-O-U. We would just use ya, Mm Y-A.
2: And all that
0: stuff started to amount to this initial feeling of being super personable and all that stuff, and also helped probably drive more people to f- finish the surveys, right? right. Mm. So sending out surveys in a very personable, very differentiated way that no one else was really doing was really important for us to get really, really deep insights into product, the vision, the brand identity, all that stuff. So all of that, in addition to surveying and understanding who our target customer was, we spent a pretty decent amount of time tweaking the product. Mm -hmm. The core product, there was stuff related to deliveries and the right food to give to a specific dog. There's this idea of the right cadence. Mm -hmm. So how often to to deliver stuff so the box isn't so heavy. There's interesting dynamics with delivery services, especially delivery services that are fresh and particularly actually frozen, ours was frozen. So we had to have Ah, a specific element of figuring out all the logistics. So in that vein, we spent a long time hiring the right people to help Ronaldo, myself, and a lot of the other team members scale. So bringing on operations experts. It's really important to know that one of the most common reasons why startups fail is that one they don't have the right product that fits the market so that's called product market fit right number two they run out of cash they mm-hmm. just burn through it for whatever reason maybe they just mishandle it or whatever right and then number three in my opinion the most important is they didn't have the right team right the underlying team was not able to figure out how to manage the money was not able to find the right product market fit So in my opinion, a vast majority of time, especially on a company's beginning, should be figuring out the right people to put in place Mm -hmm. because they are going to be the most important people that are going to help with the first interaction people have. There's this idea of the first hundred users are your most important users. If you don't satisfy them, then it's going to be exponentially more difficult to grow because if they have a bad experience or less than... Exemplary experience, they're less likely to tell others about it, right? Uh-huh. So it's really important I think for the brands that I've worked on to make sure that there's an element of Leadership wherein they're okay with spending a decent amount of time recruiting the finding the right people and willing to pay the premium if there is a premium on finding that perfect person and then also Making sure that those people focus on managing the money well and focus on thinking and making sure that there's an actual market for the product that you're selling. Oftentimes entrepreneurs create a product thinking that there's a market without actually doing the user experience and design prototyping. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes because they're not necessarily designers and they don't think about user experience and the right questions to ask to validate their product. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really huge role that designers can play.
1: Yeah. And at what point did you think about the visual identity with respect to rebranding? Yeah. And uh, why did you choose to go with the uh, Sagmeister Walsh? Ah, yeah.
0: so big questions. Right. So, let's do the first question. This idea of how do we start thinking about what the visual identity should be. So, going off of that, let's go off that question first. Mm. We noticed pretty early on, before we even started thinking about rebranding, that it's not the human that's our consumer. It's the dog. Mm -hmm. so when we had that insight we very quickly and naturally were able to start thinking about that the visual identity not only has to appeal to humans because they're of course they're buying the food but even more importantly it has to appeal to dogs
1: Uh how do you do that so interesting
0: so there's a variety of insights that we found and a variety of executions that we made to do that Mm -hmm. one thing and i think designers would find this very helpful to know and validating is that designers should often do a ton of research. So one bit of research and curiosity exercise that we did, and it takes very little time, is just Google searching everything there is about dogs, right? Right. What colors they they can see, all the different dog breeds, what are the common diseases, all of that stuff was just like corralled into this huge Google document that I ended up uh, sending to our various Uh, third parties but also use internally to just make us experts in this field right and so during that research we realized that one there isn't really a stereotypical dog in the sense of you can't just homogenize all dogs into one they're all every single dog because their owner and, and or rather parent and where they live all this stuff amounts to very unique Personalities. personalities yeah so that was interesting i think another interesting insight was that dogs can only see a certain color spectrum right so dogs cannot actually see many of the colors in the roy G. biv hmm. set we
1: call it vip cure
0: oh or yeah right backwards <laughs> yeah right they can't see violet and green and et cetera. Right. And so we're like, oh, that's interesting. Like, could we craft an identity that appeals to the dogs from the color point of view? Mm-hmm. And we realized like, okay, dogs can see the whites and the browns and the grays, but the most vibrant colors were blue and yellow. I see. Now, admittedly, we pushed blue and yellow pretty far. And, you know, the dogs, according to research, can see much a much more muted blue, but that's okay.
1: Right. right.
0: Uh, that's so, um, so when we were starting to think about all of these research, we wanted to make sure that the people like the agencies, we want to go the agency route, mm. the agencies that we brought on, mm. particularly to craft the brand identity. Really made sure that they took those insights into consideration when they're making the work right right because what I the worst thing that could happen Especially during brand identity in my experience is that there's the research department or there's all these interesting Insights all floating over here or maybe the client knows them in their head and they're just not communicated or whatever Mm -hmm. And that research doesn't end up threading the work or at least helping inform or influence the work
1: This is a really good point for all the design agencies. Mm. I mean, this is a good insight from internal perspective that if somebody's narrowing down some agencies to design that they really want them to take into consideration all the research that they have done. H-
0: totally. Right? Uh, 100%. I think there's an interesting point even within that where research could either help influence the actual inspiration of the work, mm-hmm. but research could also help in influence the actual work beyond that. So what I mean is mm-hmm. oftentimes agencies or designers will validate a design decision that a consumer might not never realize or know. Oh, we were influenced by this map or this color or whatever in this specific village or whatever.
1: Very artistic.
0: Very artistic, right? And consumers might not necessarily know that or care. Uh, Yeah. So I think the stuff that's most interesting is the inspiration and the research that actually users will care about. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting area to be in. So we wanted to make sure that the identity and the inspiration and the research, all that stuff was very clear to a user and the customer why we're making these certain decisions. Right. So right. an example of how we manifested that idea was that there was four different size boxes, a small box, a medium box, a large mm-hmm. box, an extra large box. And on the small box, we'd have a smaller dog mm-hmm. uh, on mm-hmm. the side of it, it was like a Chihuahua with like uh, airpods (laughs) and then for a larger box it would be a larger dog so it was pretty clear from a user perspective what dogs would be the right fit for each of those and they all had very vastly different personalities of course so i think threading the research in making sure that consumer would actually know about the research is probably one of the most interesting areas to play in right so narrowing down was actually a a pretty lengthy process in the sense of the company at the time when we first started reaching out to agencies and like part branding partners i i guess i consider them more as partners than agencies right, right? So, branding partners yeah well. i was thinking more let's, right. so let's use the word partner i might use the word agency but because that's the general nomenclature but like i really wanted to have a true partner somebody who i knew could come into the brand and just be a true proponent of it and also be
1: good team player
0: with a the team player agency. and yeah. make sure that they're in it for not for awards but for like actually success of the actual brand right that was very <laughs> important right uh, and as we know some work gets ma- mainly made for awards and all that stuff and that's, <laughs> a, lot right, of that's a different question maybe yeah. we want to answer later so we had some money we had earmarked specifically for branding and we knew that we wanted to do branding But at the time, when I first started the design RFP process, the request for proposal process, in Mm -hmm. in which I was asking and having conversations with various partners, generally understanding, are they interested in it? Can they work within our timeline? How much would it cost? All that general like kind of stuff that you just naturally have to talk about. At the very beginning, we did not have a clear sense of what aesthetic we wanted to go for. Right. That was threaded and very clear from the company. We just didn't ha- we didn't really know what we wanted. We knew we wanted something new, something that could not be ignored. And also based on the research. And based on the research and partners, availability, we didn't want to feel like the small uh, startup that would get very little attention, right? We wanted to make right. sure we had uh, people behind us that were really excited. And so when we first started the RFP process, we pr- cast a pretty wide net in terms of like aesthetic location. I was was talking to agencies in the UK, uh, all over the world. And when I reached out to Sagmeister and Walsh, they responded pretty much immediately. Mm-hmm. saying, this company sounds really interesting. Jessica has a dog named Oscar, right. a French bulldog, yeah. who was actually uh, undergoing some serious health issues at the time. Mm-hmm. And she was actually struggling for herself to find the right food and stuff like that. So mm. she had a personal connection. And I. And oftentimes there's like kind of like this meme of, oh man, you're just trying to get new business, you know, and you're just trying to give the client lip service. But it's actually very important for me to ha- make sure that the partners that I work with. With have a very emotional and rational basis for wanting to work right. with me. They have some sort of background. They were touched by it in some way, whatever. It just makes for better work and it makes for a better working relationship. Everyone's more passionate, right? Mm-hmm. And so she responds with this excitement uh, and also, hey, you know, we're generally in this. Uh, we're generally interested in working. Let's kind of meet. They were the only agency that said, let's meet immediately right right no other agency really seemed to do that it seemed like even the agencies in new york this could have been totally my perception but it felt like a lot of them had their process of way of doing things where they would set up an initial introductory call maybe do a video chat maybe Mm -hmm. that was very rare too i would actually have to push to try to say hey can we do a video chat it feels much more fun and much more personal but i had really had to push for that sometimes
1: also you need to establish that mutuality between people Uh -uh. i think uh, without that there's hardly any right. partnership that can happen.
0: Totally. So when I was thinking about um, this idea of per- being personable and having a true partner, just having Jessica invite me into the agency mm-hmm. and sitting down, no hard pitch, no no like credentials deck, none of that. She knew that I was very aware of the work and, and that has been done and she knew generally how I kind of was thinking about the work and stuff like that in terms of like uh, from an intellectual point, point of view and and speed and all that kind of stuff and balancing everything so it was much more like a conversation we talked about her dog we talked about my experience at pet plate why I'm there understanding the true incentives for me to be there was really interesting um, the fact that I wanted to make impact I think it was interesting for her and that she wanted to make impact too I think she probably saw a really strong creative opportunity and so it was a very 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 casual conversation i felt really comfortable because i was taking the space i was able to see how literally how the work is made i met some of the designers it was great it felt really good because at the time sagmeister and walsh they were known to have a live speed of their office. They would nice. have a, they would have the video camera, and then you could see all the uh, designers, including Jessica and Stefan, working. Yeah, you yeah, could see yeah. that twenty four seven live stream. Right. So for years, I was like, Oh my god, I'm fine. You're like, Look how awesome this thing is. <laughs> all this stuff, yeah. and then I finally am in the damn. It, it, office actually living and breathing and stuff so admittedly I was a little excited definitely giddy and stuff but I get giddy about pretty much everything so that's not (laughs) that's expected (laughs) so we then continued the conversations and started narrowing down the partners right at the time then I would invite two other people Ronaldo and and the CEO at the time, to meet people in person, right? We would meet Sagmeister and Walsh, get any of their questions out of the way, because at the end of the day, uh, Ronaldo, I want to make sure Ronaldo is happy with the work, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I want to make sure he felt comfortable. He definitely said like, hey, Ratish, do your thing. I trust you, which was super important.
1: Okay, I want to pause you for a second. Uh, what is Ratish? <laughs> your name is Ritesh, right?
0: Oh, oh, oh. So, okay, so... Just explain this phenomenon uh, to yes, people. Yes, yes. Okay, so the correct pronunciation is Ritesh, right? Mm. Uh, but in America, people uh, reference me as Ritesh. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier for an American to say the word Ritesh than Ritesh. Uh-huh. Now, I always get the question, hey, how do you pronounce your name? Uh, is it Ritesh? Uh, Ritesh, you know, whatever it is, and I and I say, uh, Ritesh, and they will say, is that how, I'm, how their actual way of saying it is? <laughs> I say, no, it's Ritesh. Yeah. Or no, then they say, um, I want to learn the right way, right. and then I say, oh, it's pronounced Ritesh, yeah. and it takes them like 10 tries to actually get <laughs> Ritesh, so then they're like, all right, never mind, I'm going to call you Tish." Yeah, uh,
1: I don't know what my name would be in uh, American pronunciation. They,
0: they would probably say Kowal.
1: I hear that a lot. Like
0: a koala, kind yeah. of, <laughs> they would probably, because, because a lot of times they put, Americans put the s- emphasis on the last syllable,
1: oh. Kowal, not
0: Gawal. Right, funny. Like they would probably say "rajma" instead of "rajma." Right,
1: right, right. right, right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so yes. um, that's a fun aside for the listeners, um, <laughs> but especially for the people named Ritesh coming and working in yeah. this. You will be
1: Ritesh soon. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um, so we met, uh, and it felt supernatural. Um, I it was Ronaldo and the CEO at the time, Gertrude and so all three of us met and they got their questions answered we talked uh, very cordially i think one of the most important steps that i took and i took v- i was very diligent about this because i wanted to make sure that the work had a clear sense of aesthetic point of view and i wanted to make sure that the agency partner that we worked with had a very clear understanding before we signed the contract and said all right we're in this that they knew and they promised that we would not go down a certain route of creative. I so see. what I did was I created a very lengthy Google document. I don't know why people, no one does this. This is very unique to me, right? Mm-hmm. But I created a document that said aesthetics. This is the stuff that we're interested in and this is the stuff that we're not interested in. So the stuff that we were interested in, we would show screen, screenshots of various work that we've like seen. Like a
1: mood board kind of Kind thing of mood
0: boards. And right. the most important thing I would say is this is why we like it. I see. We like We like it because it has a sense of wit or we like it because as yeah. has this aesthetic then we have a a big section which was the bigger section of right. the stuff that I don't want right. I don't want brutalist Right typography. I don't want this. I don't want that. And that gave us a gave me particularly a very very clear sense.
1: That sounds like a strategy deck.
0: In a way, In but a way. I, but a lot of a lot of partners oftentimes don't talk about what work their client likes and what cl- work their right, client right, does not. Right.
1: They want to take that authority to them. They want
0: they want that. Also, oftentimes clients are not very diligent or intellectual or have the know-how yeah. of what they like and exactly, why exactly why is
1: very important and i think uh, that's a good thing that use of like a
0: good bridge between that business side sure. and uh, the design side sure exactly fine. that's exactly right so we took elements of all this interesting work from around the world that i've seen and put it in the deck and sh- and I showed it to Jessica. I said, hey, I'm going to do something very uh, out of the ordinary, but can you take a, l- let's, let's walk through the stuff, the stuff that I don't like and the stuff that I do like. And let's make sure that we don't go down a route that I don't want to go down. Right. Because I've, as I guess more as designers mature, they have this sense of their gut being You can rely on it a little bit more and more as you go throughout your career, and so this instinct of oh man, this work feels really good. This work uh, doesn't feel like it was going to work for our demographic. I started Mm -hmm. get I've started to develop that uh, throughout my agency career and understanding what would work for. Also, that
1: that's that's the primary reason people pay you money for. Mm. I feel like uh, Mm. this is often overlooked, uh, but a designer is a aesthetic suggester. Sure. Uh, if I have to frame it like mm. that. That's interesting. Because uh, mm. honestly, it's like, uh, even if you know the rules, there's some kind of instinct that you need. Just like a player would require mm-hmm. instinct, right? Mm-hmm. You know you need to swing the bat, but it's the how many times you have swung the bat and yeah. hit the ball.
0: There, yeah, totally. That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. I never really thought about it. I think um, my my thought is that designers should not just be that aesthetic suggestion but also be very empowered to affect core product and understand That's the right. UX. But oh, but but I but see what you're saying. even the yeah.
1: fact that you know, just because we have spent more time with uh, suggesting aesthetics mm-hmm. before, we have a robust vocabulary and a better way of analyzing what might or what might not work for an right. audience, right? Right. Yeah.
0: I think uh, this idea of developing your instinct over time is a really interesting thing. And I think it should be more actively pursued from, especially from designer point of view of just developing your instinct of what feels like it's gonna be successful and what's not. Uh, Of course, there's user experience research and all that kind of stuff, but what's difficult from design point of view is oftentimes you're in situations where you cannot do A-B testing yeah. or nor do you, does it make sense or whatever. And so you have to start developing this instinct of uh, generally what's going to be... It's also successful.
1: like, it's very similar to what a chef has, right? A right. chef has a tongue that can tell that this is fresh or not. Yeah. Right. This will really work for that particular person or not.
0: Right. And I think I read this somewhere or maybe I made it up or something in my dreams, but I... And as a client on the client side, I, or just anybody, if you're just hiring somebody, you're not just hiring them because they can do the hard skills. I'm also hiring you for the books that you read, exactly. The news oh.
1: that you read, obviously. All yeah. of that stuff. Yeah. So, so
0: yeah. I need. I also need to understand when I'm hiring somebody, particularly people who are not as maybe popular as Jessica, right, or Stefan. I need to make sure that I have a good sense of what your taste is, what mm-hmm. your aesthetic is, and in addition to your know-how. Because it's easy to learn an illustrator. That's not necessarily yeah. what I'm worried about. It's more of understanding what is this person actively thinking about, what how do you news, think? how do you think, and all that stuff. And it's, it's kind of an, an art uh, and a science to understand that. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't, I haven't put together a framework for me to do it that I could share publicly because I haven't really thought about it. It's more subconscious, but I've started to think about doing that and it, it's, it's started to help inform who, or it's continued to help inform who I hire, Right. whether it's a junior designer who I mentor, um, who I talk to higher up, even these people who are highly revered. I oftentimes ask them, what are they watching? What are they listening to? All that stuff, because that's going to help inform the work. Wow, that's a really good suggestion
1: and a tip for everyone who is in that position. Yeah. It's amazing. So, yeah. Uh, now, let's talk about uh, the partnership with Jessica sure. Walsh after both of the parties signed that agreement.
0: Sure. So, I did a, something that was pretty out of the ordinary. Um, in fact, the funny story, the contra- I got a gr- approval from my team mm-hmm. on the peplate side to sign the contract with Sagmeister and Walsh while I was volunteering at a brand new event, which was about, I would say, a 10 to 15 minute walk away from their Sagmai Walsh office.
1: Oh, it, the brand new conference yes. in New York. Yeah, right. I believe
0: it was first round.
1: It was two thousand fifteen, New, new
0: this, York. This no, well, there's that one, but the the one that I was at was the one their newer types of conferences, which called right, right. first round. First and, round. And that was about that was about May or so June yes. of last year. I so want to attend that. It's because so good. That's
1: really interesting idea. Brand so new. Good. I know the format, but yeah. that's a very unique idea. It's
0: so good. People should Google that. Yeah. So I mean, and and the reason that I like first round and then I'll get back to the original question. One of the reasons why I like first round is that there's no cameras. You're not allowed to take yeah. photos. There's no recordings because this is work that was not public necessarily. This is right. usually work of the literally the first round of a pitch and oftentimes that work does not see the light of day uh, nor or a designer or agency wants to actually show that work publicly, right? So it's a really interesting behind the scenes curtain of like where the work Started and they give you
1: inspiration. I, I, I that's what uh, I actually when I heard about that They were starting that conference. Mm-hmm. I was like, I wish I could buy the video. Yeah, of sure because so wow good. You can learn so much so by good. just observing how people pitch totally yeah.
0: and and I think I think there is a some sort of interesting conversation that designers should be encouraged to have where they ask Anybody who's made something and say, this is the end result, right? This is the public version that I'm seeing, but can you walk me through what was the first initial thing that you presented? Or what's the first initial thing? That conversation oftentimes is not discussed. Usually designers... People don't
1: want to reveal also. Yeah, also true. It takes a lot of uh, vulnerability to... Uh,
0: By the way, when I say, huh, that's like one of of the 10 words I know in Hindi. (laughs) So I'm very excited uh, to use it. Um, So... During the break time of Brand New, I actually walked the signed contract over to Jessica Walsh's, uh, to their office, and we celebrated. We were just like, I'm so excited, whatever. And then we just off to the races, right? Mm -hmm. So the um, first phase that we kind of had was this idea of onboarding as much research as possible. Right. There's this idea, and I spoke at Type Directors Club about this, of this idea of intense hyper fluidity of information going between the quote-unquote client and quote-unquote designer. Right. This idea of, hey, I've got this piece of research, what do you think about it? Is this interesting? Let's tuck it away somewhere. And building this kind of treasure trove of research all in one document. Because mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than having like all these disparate ideas, all these various places. So I wanted to make sure that all of it was corralled and funneled into one resource that right. clients and designers could reference very easily. So we engaged in this for a few weeks, right? And we figured it out, uh, we started thinking about what is the differentiators and what is the general strategic playground that we want to play in. So this idea of humanizing dogs, this idea of making life easier, or at least making the entire experience with Pet Plate easier, this idea of showing p- dogs getting like a lot of pleasure and joy out of the product, right? These three things were really interesting to us and that allowed us, this it's, this There's word,
1: right? Anthrop-
0: anthropomorphizing? Anthrop- yeah. And, yeah. Anthropomorph- like basically humanizing dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. We're looking at the market and a lot of dog food brands were trying to humanize dogs. They were all saying, oh, dogs are really like family and stuff and we're like, you know what? But the product that you're selling isn't really treating them like family otherwise you wouldn't be uh, you wouldn't be selling some of the products right? right yeah so there's this idea of allowing the work to funnel through this very specific product vision, Mm -hmm. but at the same time being vague enough where it allows for a lot of creative freedom. And it's really hard to nail those key terms and value propositions and differentiators all in that way. And I I encourage a lot of designers to think a lot more clearly about what the specific words are that they use because uh, we specifically said the word pleasure. Mm-hmm. Which was very different than happiness, or very different than joy. Exactly, pleasure allowed us a very different way into the work. Humanizing that word allowed us in a very specific way versus family.
1: Yeah, like pl- when you say pleasure, right. you can show indulgence. Exactly,
0: right, right. And I and I think it's hard to nail those words of to help inform the work without having a good sense of copywriting, or at least at the very least having a good. good Dinosaur, <laughs> right. Right. Uh, also,
1: I, I think uh, that's the biggest mistake that people do that they do not nail the words down properly. Totally, that's the biggest mistake I've seen in most of the sure. rebranding uh, with different studios. Sure. Sure. We never have worked with that. One hundred
0: percent. One hundred percent. So I think that's an interesting uh, area that I think that our industry can continue to uh, work on is this idea of uh, great copywriting that's specific enough but allows for a lot of creative freedom. Mm. And I think what was also really cool is that when we were discussing these the strategic framework it became very even clearer to us because we used the words of where the work could potentially go because at the time we hadn't we didn't see any of the work right you don't usually create a strategy and work together and present it it's very rare when that happens uh, successfully at least and so it was really important for us to feel very comfortable with the verbiage and the copy that we were using as our strategic framework, our bedrock. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one of the ways in which we filtered those words was, will this? if we close our eyes, will this word give us a creative playground that was really interesting? Could I, as a client, visualize where pleasure could go or where ease could go or where humanizing could go? And the answer was totally yes. So that, that helped, this idea of copywriting, but also being uh, cognizant of the general marketplace and where they're failing and where they're succeeding really allowed us to optimize the strategic framework. So,
1: and how did the team at uh, Zagmaster and Walsh take that kind of research and the data you provided and converted that into visuals?
0: So, there's a lot of ways in which that happened. Now, they obviously have their secret sauce and they're killing it with um, how they approach the work specifically. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't in the actual like uh, agency while they were, you know, doing right. uh, doing their making their magic. But from what I could tell and what's pretty obvious to the to the public is that this idea of being all in, this idea of uh, a ton of different designers coming together and figuring out where is this playground visually that could work. And naturally, and this happened at Wyden, and naturally letting the people who are showing a lot of promise in leadership to naturally bubble up and help lead the work rather than saying, hey, you too need to work on this work and good luck. That happens a lot with a lot of agencies, particularly really, really large ones where there's these two designers, they're paying them full full wages and they're just sitting on the beach and they don't have any work and you just give them a piece of work. Mm-hmm. I think the best way to do it is have as many people as reasonable be part of this thing, all swarm in, they all give their feedback on like where this work could potentially go and spend a little bit of time. And then whoever has like a pretty darn decent idea and who is naturally really excited about the work, they end up becoming the creative leads or whatever. So what ended up happening, what it seems like is Jessica really helped really be the leader here, right? Uh, and then uh, identifying the creative leads, Ryan Haskins and Gabby Nami, uh, they are brilliant designers. Um, Gabby is still at uh, Walsh, what is now Ann Walsh and Ryan is going off and doing his own stuff. And then there's a whole team of designers and freelancers, etc. that touch the work below right. that. And I think that natural bubbling up of who is the right perfect fit and stuff was Our a really interesting guy, way yeah. for this stuff to come, to, come, to, come alive. So one of the specific ways in which the work started to show these strategic e- framework elements was this idea of nailing the copy. This mm-hmm. idea of nailing the fact that great dumps start with great food. Like that's <laughs> hilarious. Like what, what company is talking about poop actively on social media, right? And a dog food company is a perfect company to talk about because dog parents have to pick up their dog's poop yeah. i think the other way the work started to come alive and this idea of humanizing and stuff is the photography and this idea of the photography taking taking the humans out of the picture and replacing them with dogs so what are right. things that humans would do okay spa day they would have a towel turban and they would have like these massage uh like kind of spa pillows and like palm fronds all that stuff we put a dog in there right we throw a dog in there we put this idea of like dogs you know you hear about this idea of uh, yoga right downward dog and so we literally had we took a photo of a an awesome bulldog Mm -hmm. after hours of getting this dog to do it finally did this downward dog position that was perfect of looking right at the camera with a perfect expression right we have other spa treatments and it would just Really thinking about those strategic elements and making sure those strategic elements were very clear to a user of like what we're trying to right. communicate. Like
1: when you said uh, humanizing dog, you're literally doing literally it. Literally doing it, right? Yeah, it's not like an abstract thing that you exactly. explain
0: later. Exactly. <laughs> the other yeah. thing that uh, I think oftentimes is overlooked is spending more time coming up with witty taglines than to coming than coming up with taglines that clearly tell somebody what the product is. I agree to that, Right. I
1: agree to that. That's one of the biggest uh, problem that I have with the, most of the advertisement people. Right. They'll make super witty, it will win awards, or whatever, whatever, but when you put it in public, uh, let's say it's targeted to my parents, they would not understand. Sure,
0: um, so there's two ways that manifest, that insight manifested. One was on our boxes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So we um, came up with this line of healthy dog food for real, and mm-hmm. for real f-u-r-r-e-l right? right so like for like of the dog right. um and then there was other places where this started to come into life we had like on our website one of our top performing copy was real food made fresh for your dog right so people mm-hmm. clearly understood we weren't saying we are a fresh healthy del- dog food delivery service that comes frozen like all that stuff there's all these elements that are important for a user journey, but they're not important for the tagline. Right. right. So or else, no, you're not talking in a very abstract. View, exactly. Right. Exactly. Because like some people just take abstraction to a ridiculous. Totally. Point, right. Totally. So that w- those were just some examples of how the strategic framework started to come, come to life. Mm-hmm. I think another thing that we realized was we wanted the work to feel like especially for the photography, we wanted the work to feel like a dog learned how to do it, like a dog was doing it. <laughs> so the typeface that we chose for the headlines was called Separat, and we modified it and customized it with Type, the original uh, creators of Separat. Mm-hmm. And we modified it, um, but the underlying inspiration was Winston, this goofy dog that's really awkward and really funky and funny and hilarious and cute. And we try to think of and research what about Winston, could we utilize in the typeface? So we modified it, and it felt like a fun, goofy, very, very, um, like beautiful, but also at the same time goofy typeface. Right, and right. so that that helped. Uh, and then there's also this element of for the photography. We wanted the the photography to look good, but not perfect. This idea of dogs learning how to use Photoshop was a uh, also another way in, right? So we humanized dogs, but not in the sense of going so far that they know the exact same things that and do the same exact abilities to the same level as humans could do. They're dogs at the end of the day. They don't have opposable thumbs. They'll they'll use a mouse in a different way. So they might execute Photoshop in, in a less than perfect way and we're totally okay with that. Mm -hmm.
1: And let's talk about the logo. Uh, I mean, generally when uh, people comment on the whole branding, looking just at the logotype, I find it such a horrible thing to do. Because logotype is, nowadays at least, has become just a tiny part of visual identity of it. So how did you think about this logotype and what was the evolution like and why?
0: So one of the things that we're thinking about internally is, man, does this logo have to communicate dog food? Does it have to communicate a dog even? Does it have to communicate anything about the product? Product, mm-hmm. we ended up saying no we don't need to have the logo communicate the Actual product itself because when you're looking at it, like you kind of mentioned, but more specifically, when you look at the logo within the context of the box or within the context of the website, the product itself and the value propositions are explained elsewhere. Right. right. So, right. kind of like right. what you're mentioning, I think what was important for us was two things. One was making sure that the word mark used the same. If we're going for with a very, like, only a word mark to utilize as our logo, we want to make sure that there's consistency between the logo and the headlines because okay. that's most. People would yes, they would see the word pet plate, but when they get on their website, we knew from user experience that the main thing that they looked at first was the headline right. and the general sense of the vibe. And so we didn't think that we would have a logo that was only a word mark, but it ended up being totally fine.
1: But I think uh, the name of the company is such that you don't need. It's like you you yes. don't you don't write Apple and draw Apple. Yeah, right. You do either. Yeah, you do either.
0: That's very. That's a good. That's a really good point. The other thing that we found pretty early on is that when you put the P on a different axis, if you rotate it, it actually looks a little bit like a dog tongue. And so when we we're starting to think through animations, which we do put mm-hmm. back on the end of every single one of our videos, mm-hmm. we worked on the animation with Andy Baker Studio, an amazing studio out of London. Mm-hmm. And we were like, oh man, what if we use this inside of the P looking like a panting dog, like the... <laughs> Right? right? And then it flips into the, um, the word mark, right? And so mm-hmm. we're just thinking about this idea of hunger and food and dogs and putting it all together. So all of these insights can be totally treated as purely uh, kind of inspiration or whatever. But again, we wanted to make sure that, that any inspiration that we had was very clear to the user of, right, of what right. the product was.
1: And Also, I like the, the fact that it was like a journey. You were not yeah. like conceiving it in one go. Exactly. And uh, I also attended another uh, talk by you at uh, the product school well uh, there you mentioned that uh, you were doing a b testing of the website right. graphics right? right so can you talk about that aspect because uh, a b testing for graphic design and validating it to your internal team that this works better than something else sure how does that happen
0: sure so one of the priorities for us was pretty early on understanding what creative generally would work and what creative would not. So what we actually did was, even before the stuff got launched on the website, before we had photo shoots, Mm -hmm. we actually did some user experience research Mm -hmm. to understand, okay, look at these concept images, which ones communicate this thing to you? Which one, like, we we want to make sure we got objective feedback. Because when you ask somebody for their opinion, they'll give you an opinion, but we wanna make sure that we're asking questions in such a way that there was objective. Is this communicating fresh to you versus what do you think about this, right? When you say, what all do you right. think about this? They're gonna talk about taste usually. And that's sort of not the best way to approach user experience. So we asked a list of questions, hey, does this communicate pleasure? You know, what Does this communicate this? How does this make you feel? That kind of thing. And then when we corralled all that feedback, we very quickly dwind, uh, whittled down the maybe, let's say 20 to 30 concept images that were provided, a lot of them were provided by Sagmash and Walsh, down to like maybe seven or eight hero images, for example, the work that was ended up getting produced. Right. And So we actually even knew before we went into a photo shoot, what stuff actually resonated with consumers Mm -hmm. that made us feel really excited because it allowed us to feel like the photo shoot investment was Mm de-risked because we already had somewhat of a scientific understanding of what generally people liked. Now, what's really, really exciting is the stuff that people tended to like tended to be the most creative stuff. It had some sort of element of wit. It had some sort of element of strong creativity and it had some sort of element of clearly conveying some of the brand stuff that we're trying to show. Oftentimes, designers can feel scared about you doing some any sort of testing because they're right. worried that the design will become less craft and more vanilla, right? This idea of right. boring or something. And in fact, the majority of the stuff that I've realized, especially uh, at Pet Plate where I am now and even beforehand, actually the stuff that's most creative when it's executed in a specific way is actually the best stuff which is actually very i think very exciting for users and for designers for First. designers yeah so the other aspect it also depends
1: on how you do the survey
0: 100%. 100% how how you and this is very important designers should not just go out and just do user research no. they have to ask questions in a very specific way that you would get objective feedback that would end up being very helpful yeah and they have to ask questions in such a way and even organize even the way you organize the answers the multiple choice answers versus open-ended all this stuff is going to give you very different feedback and it could completely skew the results so i very much encourage you uh, designers if you're interested more is checking out and make spending a lot of time researching how to ask questions the right way So there's a lot of resources out there to do that. Uh, Nielsen Norman Group has some pretty good articles on asking questions and Uh, getting good surveys out.
1: I'll add that in the podcast notes. Awesome.
0: So um, the next step was before the website even launched, we did some A-B testing on emails. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we had a pretty big email listserv, we were able to get some scientific understanding of like, what copywriting people are liking and what Mm -hmm. design stuff they're liking and consumers loved it because users were actually being empowered to help craft this thing we announced and said hey we're coming out with a new identity we're gonna continue to like build some really amazing products and everything but our visual identity is changing and users were able to give us feedback throughout that journey which was awesome and i don't think enough companies and designers and product people do enough of bringing users, their actual paying customers throughout that entire process. Usually it's just like, all right, well, we have a rebrand that's out in the market and you either love it or you hate it. Mm -hmm. And from studies, we know that it takes basically about five hundredths um, of a second, five milliseconds, in other words, to make a first impression. So it's important to not only make good first impressions and make sure that there's a really strong sense of craft and everything in the work, but also making sure that users are taken along for the journey. So that's the second aspect. Then we went to launching the website in social media ads and on the website, right? Which right. is your initial question. So what we did was for about the first two weeks, we would leave our hero image that we knew we just wanted to communicate for the first couple of weeks. Right. It was basically all these dogs sitting at a table and they all had like these cool little fun outfits and they all had like different fruits and vegetables all laid out right we knew that that we wanted that to be our hero image and to make sure that people had a really strong sense of where we're taking this because that image communicated that dogs deserve a seat at the table when it comes to health right And so we wanted to make sure that the users were looking at that constantly, consistently for a first few weeks. Then, once we had the brand established, then we started A-B testing. One example of A-B testing that tends to be one of the most powerful ways of getting results is playing with the format. So the first initial image was a full span image with the copy nestled in the very middle. Mm. That was the, again, that was the initial image that we went out with. But what we did was we tested that versus putting imagery on the right and copy on the left. So they're separate. So it's right. half and half versus right. this full so image. So some
1: people will get this, some will exactly. get Exactly. One will get version A, one would get version B. Then you can actually test the uh, conversion That's day. exactly
0: right. right. So as a startup and as a designer, we did not care about was this specific copy changing, we just cared about these big wins, this idea of big insights that we could say, oh, this dramatically different piece of creative mm-hmm. performed better than this one. Either the way we would monitor it, this idea of micro-conversions versus macro-conversion. A micro-conversion is everything we're familiar with. Micro-conversion is you land on the website, you click on a specific button, for example. You're going from like maybe one small interaction to another interaction. A macro-conversion is a, gen- a sale. A macro conversion is you land on the website, how many people at the end of the day are actually doing this thing that's not just one click. It's maybe five clicks or you have to enter a form field or something. So we looked at both. And we looked at which hero images and media copy, all that stuff through this A-B testing were improving micro-conversions, and then also which ones were doing macro-conversions. And I can go on and on about this, it's very which interesting. One? Which one won? Which, which one? What do
1: you think is the reason that? So,
0: yeah, right, so one of the examples of imagery, or the format rather, the hero image that worked really well Was we had copy on the left and we had the image on the right. Mm -hmm. I think what was the reason why that went over relatively well was that there was a specific sense of where the eye should be drawn. When a user lands on a website, they tend to look in this kind of F way. Right. They'll start with the top left. They'll go and scan across to the top right. Right. They'll go so it's most usually the menu. They'll go over back again to the top left. Right. They'll go down the left side of the page. They'll go to the far right. Right. They'll go back to the left and then down. So they're making the F That's shape.
1: Pretty much like how we read in English. Right. 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 Exactly.
0: From left to right. Totally. But
1: I I have uh, this. I mean, I have this speculation that I think it's happening more and more uh, that certain kind of design is winning over another because it's mm. done more. Ah. Yes. I, yeah, people right. are getting trained every day to read like that. So if everybody is doing like that, I mean and obviously that will win.
0: So that's that's interesting. I think I think the other before I get into that point, right. The other really interesting thing that is important to note is the imagery that we used had a sense of wit in this winning I combination. See, I see, uh, I Not only has a sense of wit, but also most clearly identified uh, to a user, what is the value proposition is how our food is made. So in other words, it was a top-down view of pause. You saw the food, the finished food, and then it would spin and animate into the ingredient and back again. So it very clear, clearly showed that to the user what the end of product was and that dogs were eating it because they're an element of pause, And then also all the health benefits that came along with it. So there's that, there was this idea sense what of motion. It?
1: I think uh, that, uh, I mean, that imagery really communicates what this company does, right? Sure. Maybe it's the imagery that's making it win mm-hmm. not the layout. Right. Or did you it's test the same, the, same sure. imagery Sure. The okay, right,
0: right, right. That's a, then you get into this idea of multivariate testing. Mm-hmm. Multivariate testing is what specific element within the entire, let's say, hero image is actually moving the needle. I see. So so the first type of test we would do is just big wins. Okay, this creative because oftentimes certain specific creative, like certain copy only works with a specific image. You can't just have the same copy across multiple images. It just doesn't necessarily work. Mm-hmm. So we had this very different creative A versus creative B, right? Once we realized that for example, creative B was winning, mm-hmm. then we would look at the smaller wins. okay. Now that we know that Creative B is winning generally, let's start making these small tweaks. Maybe it's the headline or the subheading or the button right. or the image on the left and the right, you know, and then start making those smaller wins. So there's this element of for startups that we're oftentimes, especially during a rebrand, is they're very open to taking risks. Mm-hmm. But as the product gets larger, there's more investors, there's higher sense of risk aversion and people want, don't want to take any risk and marketing teams team starting getting more budget, brand designers tend to get a little bit less, or at least designers have to then focus a little bit more on marketing, right? We all know this. A lot of designers know this. Then what happens over the life cycle is uh, then companies are less and less willing to take these big risks. So it's really important for designers to think about this idea of testing at the right time not waiting too late because people might be less willing to take risk but also at the same time not testing so soon that the brand identity and the whole culture that you're trying to build in the new design yeah. is completely disjointed yeah so uh, how was this uh, identity received
1: after it was launched Sure. So yeah. I mean, there's a brand new where it was published and how it was received there, which people can read. But sure. in general, let's talk about different aspects.
0: Right? So the way it rolled out on to normal users, like actual customers that are buying this thing is very different than, you know, seeing a review on a blog, right? Right. The review on the blog is every single element of the work. There's a review and stuff. And it's all kind of in this vacuum.
1: People like to dissect each thing. Everything. And just see for
0: for the... Uh, the main experience that people tended to have was they would see one video on Facebook, for example, or mm-hmm. one ad somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then they would go into the website and start to get immersed in how we're different. So the ads did a pretty good job of explaining this ethos, this brand ethos that we're going after, right. and not seeing all 5,000 things that we created all at once, right? right. They started like really coming in. We noticed uh, that the users that were loving us were loving us for now for two reasons. One is the product continued to get better, Right. So we simply were making core underlying product improvements. Number two, the actual website experience was so much better in terms of how we're educating the questions we were asking. You know, we had this element of when you answered, like, how much does your dog weigh? We would have these three options right we would say this dog is basically like this little skinny like too thin Mm -hmm. and then goldilocks and then bootylicious (laughs) right and then you have like a picture of a dancing corgi right right and so we had like all these little fun little ux things and interaction design elements that people really resonated with Mm -hmm. i think the other element was that we noticed pretty early on that because every dog is different we started creating these materials Mm-hmm. to showcase that every dog is different. So we could take an image of a consumer's dog, we could Photoshop it, and then put it in like these little crest frameworks that we made and then share it out to people. T- people tended to really like that.
1: Yeah, that's like uh, something people will love because it's their baby, right? Right, exactly.
0: So when we're looking at the rebrand from a retro perspective, We realized actually the rebrand went off very well. Mm -hmm. So there's three metrics that we looked at. I think that usually startups care about. Mm -hmm. One is, were we able to get a higher number of customers generally? Like new customers, right? So it's basically new customer acquisition. Number two is the conversion rate. So whatever percentage of people we show ads to or they land on the website, is there an increase in the percentage of them that are actually buying? Right. And then number three is thinking about did we get those customers for a cheaper cost than before? And the way usually startups and venture capitalists think about it is this idea of CAC, C-A-C. Customer acquisition cost. Right. So the three metrics were actually significantly positive after the rebrand. So we saw a significant, i.e., when I talk about significant, I'm talking about triple digit percentage growth. Mm. So triple digit percentage growth is pretty impactful. Especially when you think about brands like Netflix or Duolingo, they're happy with a 1% improvement sometimes, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about triple digit percent growth. Mm. And so we had a triple digit percent growth in overall customer growth. We had a triple digit percentage growth in the conversion rate. Mm -hmm. And we had a triple digit percent decrease Mm -hmm. in customer acquisition cost. So a decrease in CAC is a good thing because you're getting customers for cheaper. So that was a really great thing we were able to show. Now, would we have been happy with a 10%, like a double-digit percent growth or whatever? Probably. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we were able to get triple-digit was awesome. And what I mean triple-digit, I basically mean between uh, 100% improvement and 999%, right? We saw some number in the middle of that for each of those three metrics. So largely, this thing went off super-duper well.
1: Okay, and uh, how do you uh, measure that? Do you get measurement from the sales department and so on? And uh, Mm. again, do you uh, also nail it down to correlation
0: or causation? Sure. So let's do the first one. Oftentimes, these analytics and stuff can be very, feel like they're very, difficult to get or that it's completely out of the hands of designers or whatever right in my opinion every single person at the company should know those three metrics Mm -hmm. now again the metrics are conversion acquisition cost how costly are the customers that we get right number two but how do you measure that sure 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 so for CAC Let's actually start with the first one, which is number of customers, right? Yeah, that's that's easy. That's easy. You look in probably Google Analytics, right? Is probably what most designers are used to working in, or at least have heard about it. So you can look in Google Analytics, you can go to the e-commerce section of the site and you can look at, okay, let me look at this period of date range versus this period of date range and how many new customers did I get, right? So mm-hmm. you got that or the number of new sales, very easy. Number two is conversion rate. You can do something very similar. You can compare two date ranges and then you could look at the conversion rate. The last one, CAC is the hardest one to do, which is how expensive or cheap are the customers that I'm getting from a particular time range. So the marketing department should you, is usually the one that's gonna say, we spent 15 million dollars for example in this time range and what you do is you simply divide that number by the number of total customers Mm -hmm. and you'll get your cost per acquisition
2: right Right, so you have 15
0: million dollars you got 15 million customers it's a dollar cac a dollar per new customer Mm -hmm. and so usually the marketing team when they give that and they show you that the CAC is increasing or decreasing, it's generally a good barometer of how well the company is doing. Right. The other, of course, metric that's also important to look at is this idea of lifetime value. And by the way, there's multiple ways of looking at conversion acquisition costs. That's just one way of doing it. Lifetime value is basically, okay, if they are customers, how much money can we expect them to pay us, mm. right? So the lifetime value for Amazon might be, Vastly different than the lifetime value of, let's say, a company where you only make one purchase, right? right Amazon, right, you have right. Prime usually, I and you'll see. probably get multiple purchases. A
1: subscription-based model will have different exactly a uh, uh, like one-time time Exactly
0: right. So the lifetime value (LTV) could be different across any company, c- across different industries, etc. It becomes very difficult to understand the LTV, especially for subscription companies. Mm-hmm. Um, Or companies where you actually have a distributor or you have a a party that's in between you and your customer Mm -hmm. where they might have the data and they might not be willing to share it and they can't actually give you the LTV. That's a a very difficult place to be in to get analytics. But you can generally get this analytics from Google Analytics pretty easily or uh, a marketing team. Now, of course, there's different ways of calculating these metrics, but generally the way I described is overarching the philosophy. So it shows the efficiency of your graphic design. It can show. So we, of course, had a completely new visual identity, we had somewhat of a different product in the mm-hmm. sense of we had slightly different cup sizes and slightly different formulations, etc. Superior it formulation, like, and stuff. right? So there's like, of course, there's multiple variables working all together. Yeah. As a startup, we didn't really care if the if the rebrand was 75% due like to to credit and 25% was product. We didn't really care. We just cared that we all had jobs <laughs> and <laughs> we were doing well. And startup is doing well. And the startup. Well, right? right that's the thing that we mostly care about but you technically could understand the impact of graphic design if your product doesn't change
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you have enough data before and after the rebrand mm-hmm. and you could actually say hey this rebrand ended up doing this for our bottom line which right. is a very exciting place to be but it's also a very scary place to be for most designers <laughs> because oftentimes it's treated as the only way I can get sales is through some uh advertising campaign and maybe that's a different department Mm -hmm. or feeling that the work is going to be boring because a lot of ads let's be honest a lot of ads on on social media tv etc are boring and so it's treated in this way of marketing versus design or brand versus product or product versus marketing you know it's Mm -hmm. there's these silos that have been created but my hypothesis is that if there is a equal amount of product, design, brand, and marketing thinking all in one. Of course, there's user experience and all these other ones Mm -hmm. in there, right? But just for the sake of argument, if there's more designers that are encouraged and empowered to think in totality of the entire user experience, it's gonna be significantly better for our industry. Now it's gonna take us a long time to get to that point, but I'm happy to be a resource if anybody wants to email me and wants more information on how to do that, I'm happy to help more because I wanna help the industry grow bigger because in my opinion- And also
1: change in a way, right? Yes.
0: There's this sense of designers, particularly designers in America, that are frustrated by the workplace in some sort of way, or frustrated with the work that they're doing, and they don't necessarily feel like they're learning anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, in fact, there's a significant percentage of people who are just straight up bored at work, right. or that they feel that they work is okay and they're just dealing with it. It's about a third of designers actually are feeling that way currently, according to Google and AIGA. And so, if we can think about how to empower more designers, traditional in the in traditional way, of expanding their work. In to help touch various industries that are historically been siloed off and also figuring out ways where they can make more impact on the world with different clients. It's going to be a a huge improvement for industry and we're going to prevent less designers from fleeting and fleeing the industry and doing something different.
1: Also making case for
0: uh, design, right? 100%. And bringing designer to the table. 100%. There's an interesting statistic that I found that was a study from McKinsey that said that within an industry, the companies that had good design compared to their competitors who had okay design or bad design or terrible design, those good strong design companies outperformed their bad design companies by as high as two and a half to one. I see. So in other words, so it's a competitive advantage. Exactly. Design has finally been shown. Now we don't have to just make the argument from an instinctual perspective saying, hey, client, just trust me. Good design matters. We can now show in data that if "Quote unquote clients follow good design slash great design principles. They will actually improve their bottom line, mm-hmm. which is at the end of the day what a lot of companies care about. Most right. most people in America and um, in, in the world are actually employed by small businesses. They're not they're not working for Google or Facebook or something. They're working with four or managing companies that have ten or so less employees. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, those company owners and clients at that size care about putting bread on the table. They care about uh, making sure that their employees are happy. Mm -hmm. And to be able to prove the business value of design is a huge improvement for industry. Right.
1: This brings me to another topic that you touched in your presentation at Brand New which is about diversity Mm -hmm. in design, especially with respect to America. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, I mean, there's this term that I encountered, especially in the U.S., which is uh, people of color. Mm -hmm. And uh, according to your slides, people of color are hired in lower capacity than the the non-people of color. What is the other term?
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. there's basically non-POC, right, or POC, right? Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting stuff, and this is a uh, this issue and topic of diversity is interesting for two reasons. One is designers who took the Google and AIGA survey that I mentioned. About 9,400 or so designers took the survey. They ranked diversity in design and tech as the one of the top challenges of the industry today. Now, a lot of those designers. Sounds like they came from the West. Uh It sounds like a lot of the designers primarily were from the U.S., Mm -hmm. Europe, Mm -hmm. and Canada, and maybe Canada, right? Mm -hmm. There is Australia, exactly. Uh, There was a portion it seemed like from the raw data that you could surmise that they might be from uh, outside of the the U.S. But just by the requirement that the people had to be able to respond in English automatically puts it in more of a Western-based right, western, right. western based, uh, thing. So uh, there's a lot of really interesting things that I took because Google and AIGA, they not only published the website, designcensus.org, they published, you know, kind of like this PDF and also these infographics and stuff, Mm. but they also publish the raw data. So Mm -hmm. they publish the actual- So you can interpret. You could actually interpret and create pivot tables and and do your own analytics. And that's what I did. I opted towards doing and going deeper than even they had done.
1: Can you explain me the term people of color? Because we don't use that in India. Yeah, right. Because everyone's, everyone's
0: brown there. <laughs> pretty much. So, no, so,
1: I mean, yeah, like, uh, we have our own uh, uh, diversity over there. Sure.
0: But, uh, it might be different.
1: It's different uh, kind. And so,
0: people of color is essentially the way in which you can describe non-white folk. Mm-hmm. So, if you are black, brown, any shade in between various shades, uh, it includes anybody who is non-white mm-hmm. or non-passing white. There's a, there's this interesting idea of if you are not technically Anglo mm-hmm. in heritage, but you can still, if somebody just looked at you on the street, if you could pass as Anglo, then you are m- might be considered still Anglo. Mm-hmm. So in that way, sometimes perception is not necessarily reality. In the survey specifically, uh, people had to identify as something, whether they're Asian, white, Latinx, et cetera, et cetera. There's also some percentage of people who said prefer not to say, and then there's mm-hmm. other, et cetera, et cetera, right? Because if I have to choose, I would say prefer not to. Say. Maybe, right? Because uh, right, I, 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 don't know.
1: Like uh, uh, somebody referred to me as uh, as POC designer.
0: Sure. I was like, oh, what is that? Ah, uh, right, right, right. <laughs> sure. sure. And and we and it's really and so, interesting. I'm
1: Indian. That's my identity. Sure. Yeah. And
0: and so there and there's an interesting way of in order for us to get these data. Because a lot of this stuff matters, A lot being able to track the progress of certain populations going through design, etc. Like in, or, in order to show before and after, we have to have the right questions being asked in the right way and the answers being answered in the right way, right? And so there also is an element of making sure that the surveys themselves are... Um, allow for academic uh, interpretation, Mm -hmm. but also allows for respondents to give information that they feel comfortable with. And Mm -hmm. so, for example, we now have this kind of trend of the gender binary and the Mm non-binary and making sure that uh, people who do do not fit into this the traditional... Um, man woman binary that they have a other outlet to do so and making sure that there's progress and making sure that there's barometers so that way we can make sure we are tracking in the right side Mm. of history for this thing so yeah there's totally a an element of answering asking the right questions in the right way Mm -hmm. um, that we kind of touched on earlier when we're talking about user experience so the idea of diversity uh, in the design industry, at least the data that I've been able to surmise and understand at this point in time is traditionally from the United States point of view.
1: Right. Okay, let's just uh, limit to the United so States. So let's
0: talk, let's talk about United States mm-hmm. uh, because the historical, political, and social, and economic experience of the country here mm-hmm. over the last few hundred years uh, has had significant effects on the design industry. Mm-hmm. And certain statistics are surprising, certain statistics are not. And so one thing that we're finding is that there are a significant higher number of white designers compared to people of color, and it's been this way for a long time.
1: Yeah, but is it uh, disproportionate with respect to the population of this yes. country? Yes. Yeah. Ah,
0: I see. Yes. I see. So the, Mm. so design designers are not being represented in the same ratios as the general population. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what's happening, which is interesting is that, um, I found that it's going to take us another 27 or so years to have parity and reflect the population of where it will be in about 27 years. Uh So in other words, it's going to take about 27 years three decades, right, to mm-hmm. have 50-50 white and non-white mm-hmm. designers. Which is the
1: actual ratio of this country. which
0: Which has been estimated is going to be the ratio in about 30 years I or see. so. I, there, see. There's, I see. There's, there's so a both course of these various ratios various matching sources. to yeah. some extent. Yeah. So there's various sources, but regardless of what it's going to be in the future, today we know that the design community, branding, UX, all of that stuff is not reflecting... Reflective of the general population. I see. That's one one the pro, one the problems, and what what the kind of symptoms are, is that one we're not having enough designers of color staying in the industry, mm-hmm. or they are having poor experiences in their field and they're saying you know what i'm leaving the industry or i'm, I'm starting my own practice uh-huh. which i think is a, that in itself is pretty interesting and exciting mm-hmm. in a way of like we're now having people of color starting their own shops but the fact that about 18 or so percent of people of color are quitting their mm-hmm. job or have quit their job in the past due to discrimination that's a terrible cause for right. opening industry right right, right. And so what's also interesting is that, according to various data sources, the percentage of, or at least the sample size of people who are being discriminated or who are having less than ideal experiences at their jobs, the sample size is pretty small. Mm -hmm. And so what happens with sample sizes that are really small is any addition or subtraction of even one person can significantly change the statistics, right? right? And so right now, the sample size of people to help get to this kind of 18% or so of designers that are feeling discriminated and and quitting can be vastly different once we get higher and higher data sets. So we really don't know necessarily the true statistically significant number, Uh uh i.e. a high enough sample size for some of these things that are really important factors of symptoms of of a lack of diversity, inclusion and equity. And we'll talk about inclusion and equity in a second. Right. Because that's important in addition to diversity. And so when we have a lack of understanding of what the true metrics are, 18% is it 18% is it 21% is it 18.5% is it 19, whatever it might be, that reduces the likelihood that we might make statistically significant change because if somebody is doubting the data then they feel less inclined whether consciously or subconsciously to actually change their actual mode of conduct or how they're improving the actual populations that matter. The other thing that I found is when we talk about this idea of drop-off rate, like you also can apply this research to look at conversion rate across different stages of your life. So you have internship, uh-huh. then you have a junior designer, maybe promoted to a mid-level designer, senior level designer, a design lead or a manager, you know, a vice president, executive, owner slash principal, right? mm, And partner. mm. There's drop-off throughout that entire process for various populations. And the rate at which we have drop-off is different for people of color, Mm -hmm. is different for women and non-binary folk, and it's different for queer folk. Mm -hmm. Specifically for people of color. People of color are significantly less likely to get promoted between a junior designer to a mid-level designer as compared to a white person. Mm -hmm. Now, that's interesting. What's happening then is that it seems like, according to my research, that a lot of people of color are having less than ideal experiences as a junior designer and are not getting promoted. There's a potentially other problem, which is that... The people of color don't have a cheerleader for them Mm -hmm. that can be like, I see a lot of potential in this person. I trust that they're going to do work, great work as a mid-level or senior level designer. So we have this drop off happening between the early stages of the career. Mm -hmm. Now that's to say nothing of another really important topic of a lot of women and non-binary folk being promoted from leaders to like executives or owners Mm -hmm. of design agencies. There's a very small percentage of design agencies that are owned by non-binary and women. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, I think, too, in itself. It's important issue that's happening. and, And another piece of design research that I found is that a woman feels in order to be successful and get an interview or a job, they have to hit 100% of the job description requirements on a job description Mm. versus a man. Uh, The study was done by HP, I believe, that showed that men feel like they only need to hit 60% of the job description requirements. So what's happening is women and non-binary folk are self-selecting themselves out of the progress and men are, in fact, becoming the de facto Mm-hmm. gender mm-hmm. to get design positions and we have to make sure that uh, women and non-binary queer folk etc are being empowered to reach for the stars if you don't have every single job description, Element like 100% known like it's okay to still go for that job. You probably can still crush it Mm -hmm. Uh, Chances are that there is a position at that place that you can you can uh,
1: Just a speculation. It seems like it's a cultural difference also the culture forces people to think like that
0: totally Um, There's an interesting thing of how job descriptions are written. So, job descriptions are written sometimes like, oh, we want a sales ninja or we want this, like a wizard or whatever. Right. And oftentimes, those words actually reduce the likelihood of underrepresented people to feel like they are that person. Am I a ninja?
1: I'm not sure. <laughs> you
0: know what I mean? I see. What people you're start self doubting. And there's these a lack of ment-
1: mentorship
0: also. 100%. So um, the majority of people of color feel like one of the reasons why they're not being able to get promoted and being successful in the industry is partly due to the fact that they don't have a mentor that mm-hmm. they can rely on. And I and I think the way we can help solve this, these are all systemic issues and we're just talking about just the surface here, right? So, right. But, but I think it's fascinating for the listeners to hear. One... I think solution to that is on our Instagram profiles or on our email signatures or on our website saying, I have been in the industry for a little while. I am down to mentor you, right, to, right. For, to have younger designers feel like they have somebody that they can talk to. I did not feel when I was younger that I could go straight up to Michael Beirut." or somebody else and say, hey, can you mentor me? I just didn't right. feel like right. that would be appropriate, right? But if we have more designers showing up and saying, I am down to mentor you, that's cool. I think these little platforms of these little Instagram bios and all that stuff, it's so easy to change, right? is so right. easy to be like, right. hey, I'm down to be a, uh, I am a designer and I'm a mentor, right? And you have both of those in your profile rather than just saying designer. I think the other thing that's a systemic issue is that a lot of young designers or would be young designers don't even know about the career opportunities when they're trying to decide their future. And the right, and, right? I and mean, the, I can tell you from my own your perspective. Experience.
1: exactly. <laughs> because, uh, yeah, living in Jammu, like uh, uh, I couldn't even think about that, right? I mean, only the city kids knew that there was something like that, totally.
0: Uh, still, the, is the case, like, right? Anyways, well, it's interesting because we have this. We're living in this paradigm where we have to choose our career path. Generally, maybe it depends on the culture, but like let's say, for example, between high school and college, and then between college and right after you graduate, and that time period, oftentimes. Graphic design, brand identity, product design is not even surface. It's not even a major most of the time. People don't know that there's business behind it. They don't know that they can make money. And so there's a really interesting challenge. And if any of listeners can help me or help us crack this, how could we think about appealing to high school students and college students in some sort of educational way to say, you can do this. You may not have thought about this as a career. This is an awesome career. And here's examples of work that you might have seen out in the world that was actually done by these people. Mm-hmm. And show, you know, look at the salaries for a product manager. Look at the salaries for a creative director. Like, they're pretty good. They can... Actually, in fact, in India, I was
1: surprised that if you're working with a corporate, a designer is getting paid more than an engineer right now interesting you can you believe that i was surprised when i was talking to some of my friends and uh they're engineer now mm-hmm. and uh, they told me about the salaries and the general salary right. and i was uh, just telling it with the salaries that my friends who worked in corporates sure. got designers sure it was
0: quantum difference right right like wow well, we have we have uh, this uh, website Glassdoor. Do you have Glassdoor in India?
1: No, but uh, I sometimes refer to it just okay. for the sake of yeah. Things. yeah. So
0: Glassdoor isn't necessarily scientific because you can just say, like, "Hey, I'm making yeah. this money." Uh... But the um, you can organize, you can create a profile. and You could say, "Okay, how much does a product manager make on average at Facebook?" Right. Mm-hmm. I made the presentation mm-hmm. that you saw at Product School. Right. On average, a product school a product manager at Facebook makes around 158 k. USD right right and I don't want to get into the problematic how the problems of Facebook right but like and clearly they're probably luring uh, young product managers in for from the money and not necessarily the work mm. but no shade on them you know they do they're doing their thing the other interesting thing I think that we're that we're kind of circling around is this idea of brand identity and design in itself as an industry has an identity this mm. idea that we all, it's ironic that we think about clients and how we can rebrand their company or create a product for them or create this poster for this museum exhibition or whatever. We spend so much time thinking about that stuff and putting all of our blood, sweat and tears in that. Right, not for but, our industry. But we're not actually thinking actively about how we're actually branding the actual industries themselves. And the symptoms are that Design is treated as an art form, and it is. it is a, There's a beautiful craft yeah, behind it. Yeah. But it, sometimes it could feel like it's pretentious and mm-hmm, inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it feels like it's post rationalization. Esoteric. 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 Uh, it's in a vacuum, um, trendy, overly trendy of exactly, pictures. Exactly. Right? Exactly.
1: That's what I observed also when I got into the industry. Most of the people, like probably 70 to 80% of the people I saw, dressed very hip and uh, were like uh, from uh, affluent backgrounds and families like somebody's a writer, somebody's a writer somebody's an artist and so on I felt like it was a profession for those people, I mean I got here by accident and
0: uh, there's a kind of going off of that that's really interesting insight, going off of that this idea of we have to take a step back and we have to think about our parents for example how would our parents describe what we do to somebody else let's right. say to a five-year-old right that's a good barometer right. explain to me like i'm five right yeah if they are struggling to explain what we do on a very basic simple term or format we're going to struggle to get our parents for example excited or the layperson excited about going into our industry so does our parents do they say they create logos do they say, oh, I bu- they build websites? Are they analysts? Like what, we're struggling, in my opinion, of what is the words that we're okay with la- being labeled as and what we're not. Because sometimes we have to, uh, parents or five-year-olds, they have to think about it in terms of deliverables. What do you actually do? Show me what you do. Okay, I build this logo. I chose this right. font. Right. All this stuff. And even the f- concept of, of font and, and all that stuff is so... Subconscious and people don't understand what that even is. So then, why does it even require so many phones? Uh, right? uh-huh. like so we have to really actively think about as an industry. And I don't know who the right people are. Is it AIGA? Is it Google? Is it uh, guerrilla marketing? What What <laughs> is the What is the organization or who's going to put the onus on themselves mm-hmm. to think about how we can do a massive campaign or some sort of massive right. shift in under cultural understanding? of the impact of design because we already know what the impact of it is right but also how can our parents and other people who have never even thought about what this business is mm-hmm. to actually care and to not only care but encourage their offspring to pursue a career or not pursue a career or not because the reason i'm saying this
1: is because uh, Uh, I've seen uh, this, this is purely my observation, people can differ from this. Uh, I've seen this, a lot of people, I mean, get into this industry just because of uh, the glamour Mm. of it, Mm -hmm. especially in India. Mm. It's just like, uh, okay, I will get to dress up Mm. cool and be different than others and (laughs) create some... Interesting Instagramable things, right? But at the end of it, that doesn't pay them back, and then they feel frustrated, and overall quality of the work decreases. Right? That's also happening on the other aspect,
0: totally. Uh, I think there's an element of making sure the lifestyle and what you're specifically going to be doing is clear when you're thinking about. Going into that career, right. if you have a fake sense, whether it's uh, overly positive or overly negative or whatever, regardless, it's inaccurate. If you have that false uh, sense of the career, you're just going to be doomed to to um, to be successful. Now, there's also this interesting thing in product design that is um, starting to become uh, more and more important. This idea of like basically building a product that's so delightful and so great that you don't have to rely on paid marketing in order for people to hear about it it's so good mm-hmm. that people just tell other people about it it's viral word of mouth yeah. viral right yeah and so this idea of if designers continue to be subjugated to lower wages or subjugated uh-huh. to, poor experiences like discrimination, etc., we're actually actively affecting the rate at which other designers are going to tell other designers about how great the experiences is. Right. Mm-hmm, it's very similar mm-hmm. to thinking about this idea of when you have a great experience working for a client or a client has a, actually let's do this. When a client has such a great experience working with you, they're going to probably tell other clients that, Hey, Gawa was a great designer. Ritesh was a great designer. You should talk to them, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: This idea of building products and design in such a way, the industry specifically in such a way where it nearly impossible for another designer to have a bad experience. Mm, um and right. If we unlock those systemic issues, or a client, or right. client, then we can we can actually significantly increase the rate at which we get more designers and product people, et cetera, into the industry. Mm-hmm. It's, so I think those are some core systemic things like symptoms and problems wow. that I think are really exciting for us to tackle. But I think we're going to struggle, or I know we're going to struggle To grow as an industry if we don't actively start thinking about this in in very tangible ways. None of this is rocket science. It's just a matter of putting resources behind it.
1: I think uh, at least I can talk from the Indian industry point of view. I mean, it's a pretty young industry. Sure. India is a young nation in comparison to America. Mm -hmm. Uh, The fact that, you know, even the big studios till now are trying to get enough client and work. They don't get time to advocate for things like this. Right. Right. Uh, maybe uh yeah, In U.S., uh, it's not that uh, difficult, and it should happen.
0: You you bring up a good point. The 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 issues. The really we're talking about some pretty heavy stuff, right? These very difficult, deep cultural, economic, social, political issues. The idea that we're gonna solve them or how we're gonna solve them could only happen in two ways. One is you solve it when you're at work, mm-hmm. or you help solving it. Outside of work. Outside of work, yeah. Both of those, in that paradigm, being able to solve that requires a sense of being in a privileged place where you can actually think and take action on these problems without sacrificing putting bread on the table so it takes a lot of sacrifice also lots of sacrifice I, I,
1: can, I can tell you at least from my perspective that uh, working on this podcast I've hardly earned any money right. on this, right. and I'm putting all my money on making this podcast sure. happen just because I want this information to totally be out totally like
0: which is great and I, I'm sure all the listeners particularly myself too like we thank you you know thank you for all the effort but yes you're proving the point right you you only have so many resources and where you put those resources is a reflection of how well you're doing because if mm-hmm. in, some sort, in some degree, right? So in other words, if you are struggling to get bread on the table, you're less likely to be able to fix the exactly. underlying issues.
1: Exactly. And I totally uh, feel that a lot of people are
0: struggling in that. Totally. Mm. And so I think it's going to have to be a combination of People who are very privileged, very successful, mm-hmm. putting resources behind it, whether it's time, money, energy, whatever, mm-hmm. behind helping coordinate it. But at the same time, figuring out ways to empower the people who are actually being affected, right. who actually might not be able to have the luxury of thinking about the how to solve right. these core underlying issues. So that's a really complicated problem, Um and it's probably not unique to the industry, but I think that just the fact that we're talking about it is a really good exercise. It's just one of the first steps we. have and to And I take.
1: hope after listening to this, uh, whoever is in that capacity takes uh, initiative.
0: Yeah, totally. Then please do. And I this. think uh, I can't speak. I can't speak on your behalf, but if somebody wants to talk, you know, more about this stuff actively, please email me or whatever. Yes, Ritesh. I, I have a lot of things going on. <laughs> <laughs> please email me. Don't email. Us I have. At all. To, I have to.
1: No, no. It's. Just uh, Just that, we can email, but I have clients to handle after yeah, this. Sure, yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's there. But uh, also, um, uh, talking about diversity, I'm going to come back mm. to that. This is uh, outsider's insight yeah. about, uh, talk about diversity in the US. The fact that people get different representation in terms of ethnicity and so on, but there's hardly any I mean there is but there's not too drastic a uh, difference in diversity of ideology and thinking.
0: Ah okay. because I, I okay. end
1: up seeing this is initially interesting, interesting people topic with different ethnicity talking about same values.
0: Ah, okay.
1: Which, uh, to, uh, like, somebody who's from India, like, I, I do not identify with it. It's, like, American values of more is more, money, this, that, other things. I don't know. Like, sure. I mean, what about that diversity? Yeah.
0: So, there's there's a lot at play here, right? It's an interesting discussion. So, uh Because, because, because yeah. at the end of it, we will have, like,
1: pe- people of... Uh, all the colors and uh, orientations and uh, genders, uh, but all talking about the same thing, creating this kind of uh, unified idea of, uh, you know, these values we will follow as.
0: So there's a few things here, right? This is a really interesting question. One is the definition of how we define diversity, right? And so there's some people out there that say, okay, Diversity of ideology or diversity of thought is good enough, right? There's those there's those folks uh, that's also not good enough Yeah, exactly. But, that's uh, not good enough. I'm not saying it is good. I'm saying those are those people that are, you know. yeah, the way I'm Talking about it is which is in my opinion the right side of history, which is diversity beyond that, right? So you're talking mm-hmm. about orientation Skin color etc, right? Mm-hmm. There's that then there's this idea of inclusion and equity which we still needed to talk about a little bit so divert and I like to use this metaphor so diversity is essentially showing up to the party right we Mm -hmm. have a party going on you're you're welcome to the party but inclusion and equity are underneath that even further they're uh, even tougher topics inclusion is not only inviting you to the party but you were actually even part of the planning process of the party Mm you you were able to choose who came the decorations etc so inclusion. So not, in other words, not just showing up to the party, but also being able to talk about and engage and taking action on who actually gets to show up, who's invited, uh, what are the decorations are, what punch do people drink, all that stuff. Then there's equity, which is one of the hardest issues, which is being able to equally contribute to the music playlist. Mm, you mm. and I both have the same opportunities to choose a song that we want to play. Mm-hmm. The Letterman, Thee, Kendrick Lamar, whatever it is, right? right? We right. both are, feel like it's a safe space for us to contribute. Mm. So there's this idea of when we think about the design industry and some of the things that are happening within it, all three of the, those factors, diversity, inclusion, equity, all have to be Addressed in order for us to be successful. Now, there's an interesting thing that you were talking about. Uh,
1: if I have to use the same analogy that you used about party and music mm-hmm. and so on, I would say that uh, all the people want to listen to EDM.
0: Ah, so... so <laughs> Even if they're different a different kind of EDM. Right? Now, now you, you... Nobody cares about jazz or like, let's say... Now you bring up a very, very good point. This idea of cultural fit Versus cultural contribution.
1: Exactly. So let's talk Testament. about that.
0: So this idea of when you are potentially going to be hired at a company, mm-hmm. let's say it's a design agency. Let's talk about that. A design agency, right? They're looking to grow their designers and stuff. And they have this idea of cultural fit. Mm-hmm. This idea of, oh, does Kabul, does Ritesh, do they fit in our culture? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, there's problems with cultural fit. Cultural fit on the extreme end could basically be, do they fit with our values in general? Right. Do they follow the same code of ethics? Do they mm-hmm. follow the same design philosophy? Mm-hmm. You know, form versus function, you know, etc. cetera. Right. All that stuff. That's on the extreme, one extreme. The other extreme is complete groupthink. Mm, right. where you have a cultural fit where it says, does Galil and Ritesh, will they abide by our taste in music? For example, you brought mm. that up, right? right. Will they, well, and so what will end up happening when you think about cultural fit is, in that way is all of them, everyone ends up loving EDM and mm. only feeling like they can produce work that's EDM. And not producing work right. that is outside of that genre. Right. What is the most important thing, in my opinion, is not hiring on cultural fit. It's hiring for cultural contribution. Ah, which basically means I like right, that. Hmm. Which basically means that we have, most likely, some similar values. You know, values, I mean code of ethics and all that yeah. kind of stuff. You know, we right? don't like to hurt each other or something. All that kind of yeah, stuff. The basic true. stuff, right? Yeah. The basic tenets of just being a human. But... I don't care if you like EDM, I don't care if you like techno, I don't care if you like jazz. In fact, I know that two of our founders, for example, love EDM. And I just know that by the fact that you are really interested in jazz or experimental rock or whatever, you're going to contribute to the playlist in a way that's better than if we only had a playlist of EDM. Right. So being, and this brings me to my point of how design and advertising and any other creative industry should be hiring is we should all be very aware of our strengths and weaknesses apparently according to research it's very difficult to correct a weakness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's much easier and much more Efficient to actually just double down on your strength. So in other words If you're very good at this specific type of music that you're playing or outputting this specific type of design or using this program It's much better for you to probably continue pushing that uh, And keep doing it keep doing it keep doing it rather than you trying to learn a different program or a different genre or whatever and if you or as, as sorry as an agency are very aware that we have a very good set of illustrators, we have a very good set of people who we know how to pump out vector images, but we are able to unlock a completely amazing set of revenue or amazing set of new business or whatever by having a different person who has a completely different strength that will complement everyone, will actively contribute to the entire culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, this idea of companies being more honest with each other saying hey we're really good at this we're really bad at this Mm -hmm. and not only are we bad at it but we also should hire for those gaps in our culture that is going to make our industry better we're going to start relying more on cultural diversity inclusion and equity and less on groupthink and making the same work over and over and over again because we know that the uh the more uh, an agency hires for a cultural fit that it could sometimes be interpreted as coded racism or coded language, where mm-hmm. people feel like they're not going to be tolerated or accepted. Mm-hmm. But also at the same time, the work continues, you just make the same work over and over and over again, and you're just duplicating it across multiple clients. Right. And it ends up becoming boring for everyone or a lot of people involved and Hmm. designers get bored, right? So that's kind of my overall understanding and belief, at least right now, of how we can fundamentally change the way we hire.
1: Okay, Ritesh, so what's next for you now in your career?
0: So I think I wanna continue on this amazing upward trajectory. Uh, I've been fortunate to work with amazing people I've been fortunate to work with some really great brands that I'm really happy uh, have been worked on. And I think what I want to continue doing is pushing this idea of how beautiful of a world we can create if we continue thinking about all of the things that we kind of mentioned about accessibility product design research all of that stuff and, and wrap continuing to wrap it up into packages that make real impact on people's lives i think i also want to continue thinking about how could we improve and address some of the core underlying challenges that are going to prevent us from growing as fast as i think we could grow uh, that are more systemic and i think this balance of me growing professionally, personally, but also making the entire industry grow as a whole and, 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 succeeding. They're not necessarily at odds with one another. I think they kind of benefit one benefits the other, um, which is really exciting. Uh, of course the issue of, is of time and resources is how much de- time do I dedicate to, um, working on brands uh, myself and how much time do I dedicate with thinking about how to, address some of the core challenges and I think the way I want to continue doing it is continuing to think about these relatively high impact low effort actions so every small thing of like raising my hand whenever I hear about somebody needing help mentoring etc thinking about how to do and put out resources that designers etc can use uh, in their own communities I think is an interesting uh, place to be in so even things related to reaching out to designers that I know and just asking hey are you down to help me think through this for a couple of hours do you want to put together some sort of resource is a great step in the right direction Um, so those are a few things that I'm really excited about, and there's absolutely nothing holding us back. I think a lot of these challenges that we kind of talked about are very difficult ones to address, but we should all be super empowered to know that we have a huge, huge impact on the world. And if we continue allowing people to understand the amazing impact that we have on people's lives, understand, helping people understand that there's core, issues of making sure that we have a seat at the table when it comes to decisions and figuring out how we can address the diversity inclusion equity challenges that honestly aren't talked about that much like on a day-to-day basis if we continue to unlock that that dialogue and we continue to think about what are easy uh, or challenging action items that have high impact. We're gonna we're gonna crush it.
1: Ditesh, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. I feel much more optimistic about this industry now. Awesome. Yeah, That's great to hear. If you find conversations like this valuable and want to help me bring you more content like this. There are many ways you can support this podcast. You can leave a review on the platform you're listening to this podcast on. You can tell a friend about it, or you can also share this podcast on social media. You can also extend a financial support. To know more about that, visit designthisway.com. Please know that I really appreciate your support. And uh, if you have any comments, feedback, suggestion, feel free to get in touch with me on social media or email. You can get my email and social media links uh, on my website, www.gawal.co. In my next episode, I have another interesting guest for you. So see you soon.